This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 KYNO. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This hour is being brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors and our 4,000 plus members. And the goal that we have is to provide the consumers, our listeners, with good local information. And today I'm really excited about today's show because we're going to be talking about how did we get here? Uh, uh, the history of Fresno real estate, the local market. We're not going to be talking so much about what happened in New Jersey or Michigan. It, this is Fresno real estate. So I have somebody that's been very, very active in the business since 1967 here with us, and that's Dan Connor, the owner, and I called him the chief cook and bottle washer at London Properties. How are you today, Dan? I'm great. Thank you very much, Don. All nice right. to be here. And then, of course, we brought along um, the 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 guy that does a lot of the work there. He's the president, <laughs> actually. The <laughs> president of London Properties, and your your son that you're proud of, Patrick Connor. Good morning. Thank all you, right. Don. Yeah. All right. Now, Patrick's been here before a couple of times. Uh, Dan, this is your first time on the show. I've got to talk to you about that. Get you on here a little more often. Don't be so shy. Well, just have to tell me what the rules are. I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, um, 1967, give us a little take on what was real estate like in Fresno back then. Maybe what were some of the prices like? Oh, my goodness. You know what? Your listeners probably uh, will have a hard time relating to that because... Uh, I don't, know, I don't know what our average sales price would have been. I remember probably as a young realtor, my average sales price was around $10,000. I remember the first house I bought uh, was 6000 I think I've sold that house. Um, I think the company has sold that house three or four times in the last <clears throat> 40 years, uh, 50 years. And mm -hmm. I think the last time it sold... Um, I believe it was something like $400,000. Wow. So it sounds to me like real estate's a good investment. If it could, if a commodity can go from $6,000 to $400,000, uh, and it took some time. Uh, yeah, it took some time. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is that from uh, 67? So uh, you're talking about 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, what was the outskirts of town at that time? Wow. Uh, see, Walshaw Avenue mm -hmm. uh, was pretty much still a country road. It was two lanes. I remember that. And I don't remember anything north of Shaw Avenue much. Um, there was a big country western bar out at Herndon. And that was just a two-lane street, I think, from... I believe from Shaw out to Herndon. Yeah, boy, the town has grown because now even Herndon seems like it's the middle of town. Right. So, um, and then Patrick, when did you get started in real estate? So I came back uh, to Fresno after college in 1992 and had uh, gotten my license while I was away, but uh, came back in 92. 
Did you know you were going to follow in your parents' footsteps? I did not know, Don. I had no idea. Uh, I got kind of suckered into it. <laughs> I, uh, my dad had a development going on at the time in 1991, and I think uh, uh, he came home for Christmas and uh, walked around the neighborhood with a site plan trying to get a variance for higher density of the homes, and then later thought, well, maybe I could come back after college and see this project uh, from the ground up. So my first three years back was really in construction and uh, new home sales. Mm-hmm. And that was way out in the boonies at the time right. because that was out on, let's see, Shepherd and Millbrook. Right. That was that seemed like the edge. And uh, I rented a little farmhouse just a mile uh, east of there, half a mile east of there. That was totally out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but yeah, that uh, Dominion area and I think Woodward Lake was all um, uh, mid and late, late 1980s when that got yeah. developed. So what was your dad's reaction when you rented that little farmhouse way out in the boonies? Well, he happened to be the landlord, so oh. he was he was excited that, <laughs> okay. uh, that I didn't need a garage. I had an old barn out there, but uh, I think the 500 bucks a month I, I paid for rent was a pretty good deal. <laughs> okay. I, I thought you were going to say your dad thought you were crazy for moving way out there. But now that I know you were the landlord, this explains it. Um, and, of course, by the 1992, the mid-'90s, real estate pivoted a lot now i know that uh and we're going to talk about that on the show there's so many people that are saying well during the pandemic real estate had to pivot you know we had to, we had to go virtual for a while uh, so but i think we really pivoted in those mid 90s so dan if i could ask you this back in the when you started um, in the 70s and the 80s, how were most contracts written and, and how long were they? <laughs> well, they were, most of them were pretty simple, actually. I, um, that's an interesting question. I actually put a uh, collage together uh, in one of our offices once with the contract, a picture of the contract from the 50s, which was uh, about a half a page. Mm -hmm. uh, eight and a half by 11, um, but it was only half of that. Actually, it came in a, in, a, yeah, in a paper folder, much like the CHP, if they're gonna give you a ticket, and mm -hmm. you would carry it in your back pocket, and when someone decided they wanted to purchase a home, you'd just flip it open and, and fill in the sales price and two or three questions, and that was it. On the hood of your car, right? On the hood of your car. You, I, I believe I've actually done that. Yeah. <laughs> or on your lap, and nowadays it's on your laptop. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, I've been working on that one for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, real estate has really changed, and there it went well. It went from that to uh, uh, two-page contract, eight and a half by eleven, and then of course it was a big thing when it went to eight and a half by. 14, and uh, I don't know what it, what do you think it takes today, Pat, to act in paperwork, numbers of documents to, to sell a home with all the disclosures and... Oh, I, I think the, we have probably over 85, you know, forms and disclosures and probably well over 500 pages by the time you get through 
NHT report and some of the mandatory reports now. Yeah, the environmental hazards report is, I think, around 135 pages now. Right. Uh, I wonder if anybody's read all that yet. Right. <laughs> and our purchase agreement uh, at the end of this year, um, the California purchase agreement is going to um, 16, uh, actually 17 pages. They, mm -hmm. they just added a 17th page. Yeah, yeah. I'll know more about that in a little while because I'm taking a class on it next week. So we'll, we'll be reporting to our listeners on the new purchase contract. Um, how about back in the 70s? What, how long did it take to sell a listing? Because now it's taking, Patrick, what, less than a week in right. many cases? Many cases, yeah. We're, um, yeah, uh, 10 to 15 days, uh, depending on where we are. I don't know, Don, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, um, hard for me to recall where, where they all separated, but um, there was a time, probably in the 70s, where, of course, we also then had interest rates up to 18%, and I think the peop most of the public today cannot imagine the difference in the house payment between a 3% loan and an 18 percent loan. You still had to amortize the principal over 30 years, mm -hmm. but the, the added interest would double or triple oh, easily the payment today. So the houses m might take three or four months to sell. That A home that today we might sell in, well, certainly less than 30 days. Yeah, yeah. So people's expectations have changed too. I know a seller after 10 days is probably starting to panic. How come nobody's bought my home yet? So you bring up a really good point because I think it was the early 80s when interest rates went to 18%. That made it difficult to buy a home, difficult to qualify. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So you're, yeah, your, your purchase market was thinner. Um, mm -hmm. So there were, there were less certainly less buyers, less qualified buyers for each home that that came on the market. Mm -hmm. So we're very fortunate that we had that, although I can see we're headed back in that direction. Let's hope it never goes quite that far. Yeah. Um, I bought my first house and I was fortunate to get a 12.5% interest rate. And uh, I even remember a college professor showing us why interest rates would never go below 12 again. <laughs> well, he was wrong, and so I think I want him to change my grade that he gave me. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, we're going to go to our first commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 KYNO. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we're talking with Patrick Connor, president of London Properties, and some guy that you've met beginning of your life, your father, Dan right. Connor, also with uh, London Properties. And uh, so probably makes you proud to have your son working with you. It, it certainly does. Actually, Patrick, is uh, he runs the firm, and... and um, most people you interview would probably say did a much better job than I did when I was there. So <laughs> I'm sort of in the back room with that. I think it would be a 50-50 vote. Oh, yeah. Nice comment. <laughs> all right. Um, earlier in the show, we talked about all the 
additions to the contract. It, uh, Dan, you said back in the 70s, it was like one page. Then it went to two pages. Now it's much, now it's going to 16 pages in 2022 and a ton of disclosures and advisories. Right. So what's your take on it, Dan? Do, do you think the buyers are better informed now? The sellers are better informed than they were back then? No, oh, that's a good question. Uh, probably, <laughs> it seems strange, but I would probably say in, in many ways they're less informed hmm. because I think a buyer, uh, you know, 50 years ago, really seriously looked hard at the property. Um, they realized that once they closed the escrow, that was going to be their home. And uh, they didn't want to have any surprises of, you know, leaky roof or whatever the problem was. And I think the paperwork is now so dense with, as Patrick said, maybe several hundred pages. I, I time and time again see folks that just signed a page, one page after the other, and they don't have time to, to read or just not interested in reading the, the information that is provided because it's just too immense. Mm -hmm. um, and then, that then, on the other hand, they perhaps, because of the paperwork, don't look as closely at the property, thinking that, well, if there's ever a problem, the, you know, the, the realtor is going to fix it or someone is going to yeah. fix it. And it's, not, it's not always the case. So, Patrick, what would you say uh, nowadays has the importance of the realtor grown because of all those documents and disclosures? And many of those are mandated by the state. State says you have to have a disclo transfer disclosure statement. You have to have an NHD. So uh, the realtor explaining all this, is, is that more important today than 20, 30 years ago? Um, I think, uh, without a doubt, um, there's just so much that can be asked. I mean, now we have, you know, high fire uh, uh, areas or, or severely high fire, you know, zones. And so whether we're in the foothills, whether we're in town, uh, just the volume of disclosures that are uh, required. And then, again, certain consumers will have, something will be important to them, but not to somebody else. So I think the, the breadth and the range of what a realtor needs to know uh, is much greater now than it, uh, it was 30 years ago. All right. Yeah. And um, somehow or another, I know that we all have learned what those forms mean and how to explain them to our clients who maybe choose not to sit and read each page individually. Um, so, yeah, the importance of having representation, very important. Right. Um, how about what, what are some of the better disclosures that are out there now that help protect everybody? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, this I'm, wasn't going to yeah, be all easy. Uh, yeah, I've gone through a litany of uh, of uh, items. You know, the, our first one, the TDS, came you know uh, about 1978, and we've just been adding to that right ever. Yeah. The uh, TDS being the transfer disclosure statement mandated by the state. Right. Well, I think that might be your best shot because it's short, <laughs> and and people will tend to read it, and it's prepared by the seller. 
Um, and so the seller is giving information that they've acquired by actually living in the house. So it's not just a lot of discussion of, um, of airplane noise, uh, you know, things that so many people are going to know anyway. I think it's the most valuable form for them to get real information. That's a good point because it's yep. prepared by the seller. So it's not generic. Some of our forms are generic, whether the home is in San Diego or Fresno, it, the form's all the same. Like that big 14 page one, the statewide buyer and seller. Exactly. Uh, but that TDS uh, and the SPQ, <laughs> seller property questionnaire, those are filled out by the seller specific to that property. Right, and nobody knows the property better than the seller. So hands mm -hmm. down, the two best disclosures uh, that a buyer can spend their time with. Mm -hmm. Good, and good, it's good that they get that ahead of, or, or early on in the escrow. So maybe they can ask the home inspector. Maybe the seller said, you know, we did this patio enclosure without a permit. So have that home inspector take a, a good look and see is it was it built right um, so all right so disclosures are something that started late 70s early 80s and just keeps getting added on and on more and more disclosures T tell us about that fire hardening one because that's a new one <laughs> <laughs> i think we're still trying to figure that one out yeah <laughs> uh, but um yeah, I mean, where we've gone in the state with um, with fires, really since Paradise, right, three or four years ago, and uh, insurance carriers uh, are uh, really clamping down on what they're willing to insure, and and so they're taking a look at properties in rural areas uh, on acreage, uh, places that do fall under high fire you know, zones. However, think about our coast. You can go down to Malibu all the way up to Carmel Valley. Right, and these areas along the coast even are considered high fire or, or even severely high fire areas. So you mentioned a disclosure, Don, that, that's out now that covers everything from the size of the um, of the uh, I'll say the little chicken wire, right, that you may have um, in your attic vent, right, so that embers can't uh, get in there. How close, you know, can trees be and brush be? and these defensible uh, zones you know, around the perimeter of the property. Um, it just goes on and on. Yeah. So I think it's good that um, a, a buyer does look over everything, especially the ones that pertain to the property that they're buying. So th uh, the best buyer is a well-informed buyer. Would, would you agree with that, Dan? <laughs> it's the, the best buyer is one that does their own homework. Mm -hmm. and really takes the buying process uh, seriously and not uh, just depending on um, everyone else making disclosures to them. So I think that, that's, a good, that's a good point that you brought up is that buyers still need to be, the old, the old cliche, buyer beware, but buyer needs to know what they're getting. And the best way to find out that is to ask questions and, mm -hmm. and look at the property and, and become familiar with it. I like that because, yeah, I've seen that too. Some buyers get too reliant on others, telling them this is what you need to look out for. But, hey, it's like my dad used to say, open your eyes and look where you're walking. <laughs> be, be, because I mean, how do you blame someone else because I tripped over a crack in the sidewalk? 
you know I, I'm the one that didn't see it so all right that was in the 80s now we go to the 90s and things started to change in the 90s and uh, what do you think changed the most well, um, I remember leaving college, and uh, a couple friends said, there's this thing coming called the World Wide Web, and it's going to be the intranet of things. And, and uh, I said, well, tell me more about that. But uh, by 95, uh, Don, I mean, 96, you were expected to have a website now as a real estate you know, brokerage. And I remember those first websites and um, oh God, it'd be funny to take a look at those now. Well, all the I, text. Well, well, on when it. I was selling real estate, we didn't have copy machines. Right. Realize, <laughs> we had a, a marvelous. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> marvelous invention called carbon paper yeah. that we would write that our would, contracts. Right. That would curl up, or the fax paper that would turn right black in your uh, oh. in the dashboard of the car. Right. Oh my gosh. If you want to still see an old fashioned website and see what they look, oh, check out mine. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't changed it too much. <laughs> so, um, all right. Yeah, I. You know, another big change is, is, um, in, the, is in the brokerage side of our industry. Um, the consolidation um, that so many of our offices now, you know, we're, we have what, nine offices throughout the valley. Um, but whether it's Kingsburg or whether it's Hanford or, or whether it's Merced or Fresno, the, um, the number of off, you know, that used to be when I started, real estate was unusual to have an office with more than 30 people. And now we have, uh, I think in London properties, we have almost 400 associates. Um, so I think all the offices have become, there's fewer of us, it's not so much a mom and pop industry as it used to be. Mm, that that's interesting, and, yeah. and here was something where Fresno was different than many other areas. Um, we we were our ownership of uh, real estate companies was all local. Uh, you just didn't see the big national companies here uh, until recently, or the franchises. So London Properties is owned by the two people sitting right here in front of me. You know, it was local. Um, and I mean, uh, I remember Helen Smades. Uh, Hel yeah. By the way, Helen, uh, I'll just say she's a young 29 now, <laughs> but um, we've sold real estate together since since the 60s. And she's still with our firm, but um, the offices at Hinkle Real Estate, uh, um, uh, Helen Smades Real Estate, all, they were all family-owned local businesses. Mm -hmm. Here's a good story for you, if you can relay this to Helen. The first time I met Helen Smades, and I knew she, I, I, she was an icon in icon. Fresno real estate. Absolutely. And I think I was still in the sixth grade. She came to pick up her daughter, Debbie, who works with you now, uh, from class. And I met her outside the classroom because... The teacher put me outside the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. I, well, I was trying to organize a talk show back there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I remember that. But Helen has always treated me so good, e even though I was obviously a bad kid. <laughs> so well, she's, a, she's a real lady. Uh, she's a classic. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that, we're going to go to our next commercial break. But stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 
KYNO. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we're here with Dan Connor, um, president. Well, nope, not president anymore. Nope. You've been you've been replaced, Dan. I've been replaced. <laughs> I'm actually unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but the founder of London Properties. How right. about that? And then also the new guy. Patrick Connor, his son, who is the new president of well, London well, Property. All that new. How long, you've been president of this firm for, well, I'd say, close to twenty years. Yeah, twenty years. Okay. Yeah, that's not years. new. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, how did you pick the name London Properties for a town in oh, Fresno? Oh, isn't that interesting? Um, I had remembered from a history book, actually. Um, that the first real estate company in America in 1603 was founded by King James uh, or chartered and it was called the London Company and um, I just happened that fact happened to stick in my mind when we were looking to incorporate uh, the firm back in 70 71 somewhere in there and so uh, I wrote back to the exchequer in London, and they managed to procure a copy of the original charter uh, for the London company. And they, it had, uh, regretfully, um, uh, America wasn't so popular in 1603. There weren't as many buyers. Yeah. And, and so the company had long been deceased. So we just reincorporated it in California and originally as the London Company Commercial, and then we opened London Properties Division, um, now our, by far our largest, um, but that's where the name started. All right, well, that's interesting. It's the oldest real estate name in America. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe not the oldest company, but the oldest name. name. There you go. Right. All right, that's interesting. And, and um, I've often wondered that. Why, why London? Why not Roma, yeah. <laughs> Palermo, something like that? Right. It might have been more appropriate for us, but yes. <laughs> All right. So let's talk now about what technology has done to the real estate market, and from not only from the agent and brokerage side, but also the consumer side. What are the opportunities that technology offers us now in the last 25 years? Um, but also, what are some of the challenges? Okay, I, I'm going to wow. pick on you, Patrick, and say it. I'm calling on you. That is really broad. Um, um, I think from the uh, consumer side, right, um, we obviously got the ease of this information. We were talking uh, off air about the MLS book, right? So uh, as recently as 20 years ago, we still had books, right, that would give us the four-bedroom, you know, two-bath in Hoover, 
right? High I still theory. miss those books. Yeah, <laughs> right. With a black and white photo that you could couldn't make out you know, any right. of the image, right? Um, but those were highly coveted, right? They would people would meet in dark alleys and parking lots and pop the <laughs> trunk and say, "Here, don't tell anybody, but here's my book." Right? Yeah. Uh, I need it back by Sunday, you know. Um, but what's been really cool, I think, for the consumer is that all that now is at our hands, right? We can uh, pull up videos, right? Drone shots, uh, videos, uh, virtual tours of properties uh, on uh, on our phones and. Um, and just have full access to what's available in the market. So the consumer can have full access. Right. Yeah. Or faster. They get, they get the information, information faster. faster. Don't know if that's positive or negative, <laughs> but, right. but it's certainly available quicker. I, I know one of the challenges I have is, as a real estate agent that still works the streets, and I'll be driving and get a call from a customer and say, hey, you just sent me this new one that came on the market. Well, hey, I'm still driving, so I didn't see that. <laughs> so for a few brief moments, they know more than I know. Right. No, <laughs> yeah, right. So again, a benefit, right? These auto feeds that w we can you know, put in uh, to um, give a, a prospective buyer, right, what's hitting the market. Uh, but then there's still always, right, this information that is not yet in the uh, MLS. And so, again, um, uh, a lot that a realtor has, right, to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Pat, I think one thing I'd like to, to throw on that one is that this, it's still the service of the local realtor that makes the difference. Because there are n numerous national sites where one can acquire information of what homes are available. The difference is whether you find someone who has the skill to help you navigate the 8,000-page contract and, and to negotiate the right price and, the, and to negotiate the right terms and find you the right lender and, and connect you with the correct home inspector and the right title company. And all of those pieces make the difference that I think the real estate industry brings to the public. Uh, you, you'll never be able to just make buying and selling real estate an electronic transfer. Right. And I agree with you on that. It's um, the, the human touch that the real estate professional brings to a transaction. The knowledge. The knowledge, the knowledge. that they bring to the transaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember disclosing to somebody one time that, you know, there was a an old park here where this new subdivision is built. And let's check into the, the compaction of the land because they had taken out some huge trees. And um, sure enough, th there had been some slippage. Now, that that's history that I just knew from being living here all my life. And, and that's being of value to, you, to your client. And... Um, Okay, so there's the opportunities with technology of getting information quicker. What are some of the challenges? Because it can't all be good. Well, one thing I think um, is a misperception that some of these algorithms that a company, take Zillow, for example, right? That uh, you may uh, plug in a property address and get back an approximate value, 
right, or range. But all those algorithms, they really just go off of square footage, right, year built. Um, they go off of data, what uh, homes sold for what, right, uh, in that immediate area. But there's nothing in an algorithm that can tell you what the condition of the property is. How well has it been maintained, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what's the property right next door, right, like? And how do those people maintain, right, their home? How's that street maintained, et cetera? So whether the soil is settling from yeah. the tree that was removed, right? right? Yeah. So um, anyway, th these algorithms that were supplied, right, or, th or these, um, these values um, can be all over the board. And and typically have a range of anywhere from 6 to 12% uh, variance. So the algorithms don't walk inside the house. Your realtor does. So Bingo. Yeah. And, uh, oh, you like that one, Dan, oh. huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, once in a while I come up with a good one. <laughs> this is like your laptop. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I had one where it was a historic property on Huntington Boulevard and these people had restored the home beautifully and I was telling him I thought around 600,000 is what it would go for and he said well I went online and are you sure they said 375 you know what they must be going off of what you bought it for because when they bought it it was totally stripped out every doorknob had been removed every appliance every fixture um anyway we ended up listing it at about six hundred thousand. the next day that same online portal put their estimate at 625 so they went from 375 to 625 quarter million dollars in one day so it, um, doesn't give you a lot of confidence does it no <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point Ah, and you know, when I go back to the very first house I bought, I lacked confidence. And uh, I was going to back out. And then my uncle, which you used to work with, Dan, uh, Bob, he, he said, no, 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 don't back out. You're, you know, minimum wage is about to go up and that $44,000 price tag is going to go up. So he ended up going in partners with me, with me because I lacked confidence. And um, a few years later, we sold it, and we each had a $4,000 investment that turned into 15000 each. So he, he made all that money and never went to the house. Right. So confidence is a, is a big thing. And I think that's something that your real estate professional can bring to the, the client that an algorithm can't. You know, how can an algorithm give you that confidence to say, do it? <laughs> right. Um, what are some of the other challenges that we're seeing in, in today's market? Here we are in 2021. I guess we have to talk about the pandemic because uh, that spun us around, turned us on our ear for a while. Are we recovering from that? I don't know what the entire industry um, experienced, but I think during this, so far, this pandemic, every year of it, uh, um, we haven't had any diminished uh, volume. I mean, actually our volumes of sales 
have increased because I think people perhaps have been more focused on their home, mm-hmm. and and rather than traveling or other expenses, they're putting money into their home. They're moving up to a larger home. They're moving to a different neighborhood. So uh, as an industry, I think our volumes are uh, have pretty dramatically increased during this pandemic. Maybe the pandemic changed people's definition of home appreciation. Now we appreciate the home for what it is <laughs> rather than looking at just the numbers. Hey, that's going to outdo oh, the laptop. Oh, yeah, right. that's, that's really good. That's pretty good. Well, and uh, I wrote an article, uh, Don, maybe three months into the pandemic. It just said, did Fresno real estate leapfrog the high-speed rail? Because, you know, for three decades, we've talked about high-speed rail, that it will take um, people who are going to commute, right, from the Central Valley to the Bay Area or Central Valley to Los Angeles and get them there at rapid you know, pace so that um, they can have affordable housing and then still be able to work in the city, right? Well, instead, pandemic hits. Everybody wants to move out of the cities, right? They want elbow room. They want larger lots. They want um, areas where they can float on the river, go hiking in Yosemite, you know, get on the trails, mountain bike. Do. So we've had people that say, I don't need to commute to work. I don't need the high-speed rail to commute to work. I'll go into work once a month and I'll drive, mm. but I want to live in the Central Valley. And so I think, if anything, we've been um, a beneficiary uh, of affordable uh, of affordable housing, right, and uh, of the pandemic and where people choose to move for lifestyle. Well, I don't think the high-speed rail is uh, carrying a lot of passengers at the moment either. <laughs> well, not yet. Give it time. <laughs> With that, we are going to our next commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 KYNO. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we have Patrick Connor of London Properties here. Uh, And not just of London Properties, but the president, CEO, and chief everything over there. And your predecessor, your father, Dan Connor of London Properties, too. So uh, thanks for coming in today. This has been a good show. I've, I've been looking forward to it, and it's probably one I'm going to listen on the podcast quite a bit because it's been some good information and good insight because um, you never know where you're going till you look back and see where you've been, too. A- and that's a lot of what we've talked about, you know, the beginning of technology. Heck, we even talked about the beginning of disclosures back in the 80s. So... Um, Uh, I would like to ask you guys about where you think we're going. There's been a lot of talk recently about iBuyers. Tell us what an iBuyer is and, and is that the future? Wow, Don, um, I definitely do not think that that's the future, right? That was some speculation three or four years ago, pre-pandemic, iBuyers being internet buyers where um, large companies were coming in, OfferPad, OpenDoor, Zillow offers, um, and coming in and, again, using their algorithms to offer a price to the consumer. But what um, study after study continued to show is that the consumer – was leaving at least 11% uh, 
um, uh, on the table in terms of if they went the route of working with a realtor to market and sell their home versus what they ended up selling their home for to an iBuyer who promised to come in, uh, pay a certain value, close at any particular date that the seller wanted to close on, this assurity of close, et cetera, et cetera, that if they sold to that right um, a buyer that was going to flip the property, really come in, uh, do m- repairs and flip the property, that um, they were leaving on average 11% or making 11% less than what they would have netted had they just listed the property and sold on the regular market. So the, the uh, benefit of that is maybe the seller could choose the time that, you know, whether it's 20 days or 40 days that they're going to be there. But let's put, let's do the math. 11% of a $400,000 home, $44,000. If somebody said, Don, I'll give you $44,000, but I'm going to inconvenience you and you're not going to know which Friday you're going to move. I'm going to pick the $44,000 every time. Every time. <laughs> and, and we've talked before about um, you can use the analogy of selling a car, right? You go to Kelly Blue Book, the private party value is always about 11 to 15% higher than the trade-in value right, to a dealer. So I always say it's no different. That's kind of the algorithm or the methodology of these iBuyers is that we're going to pay, right, pay you less for the property. We'll turn it around and resell it for more. But with a car, you're talking about, what, maybe a 1000 to $2,000, $3,000 difference, not 44000 or whatever that number might be. Right, right. Um, yeah, so there's a plus when you're selling to somebody, a corporation that's in it for profit, you're probably not going to profit yourself. That's so exactly right. It's a win-lose. When, when it's from an individual buyer, um, buying from an individual seller, it's personal needs, you'll, you'll get true value there. Because, you know, one, the buyer's wanting to move in and the seller's wanting to move on. So, uh, that's where that that good price comes from Dan while you're here I'd like to ask you where do you see the local market being let's say five years from now that's that's a hard uh, well it's an easy way to get into trouble making predictions about things that none of us can control Um, I sometimes think I know our interest rates are going to be going up I think in my opinion substantially uh, that tends to slow down uh, the price increasing because uh, of the affordability mm-hmm. um, and as it takes longer to sell a home then people tend to be a little more negotiable on the pricing um, long term of course uh, and you just have to say long term because uh, homes prices are going to continue to rise. I mean, it, in my lifetime and, and the 60 years that we've been in business, uh, it's it's never failed. So um, I guess that's the best thing you can base the future on is the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see any dramatic increases in the in the short term and perhaps a little adjustment in the next few years to come. Um, 
That, that's interesting you say that. I mean, I, and I want you to know that I agree with you. I, I don't think you're going to see a major downturn. Um, but there are people talking out there. There's newspapers that are predicting the crash. You, you don't see that? Well, as interest rates go up, as I said, the homes are more difficult. Now, if this inflation uh, continues, if we have, if the government pumps a lot of money into this economy, um, as they're talking about doing, then you could see substantial uh, inflation. Uh, interest rates are going to be a direct, um, uh, directly affected by that, and they could easily double or triple. And um, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. But we also survived the early 80s when inflation rates were double digit. Um, and somehow or another, if you had bought a home in 1980 for $50,000, what's it worth today? Yes, but the, as I said to you earlier, my, the caveat is when interest rates were 18%, there were 75% less people who could qualify to buy a home. If they bought it, it did indeed go up in value. But the numbers of people, the percentage of people that could participate in that accelerated profit uh, diminished because of the affordability. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Patrick, what do you see in the next four or five years? Um, I think at the next uh, 12 months, we'll still have um, a fairly decent clip of uh, appreciation, and then we'll probably get back down to what um, we consider normal appreciation, which over time has been about 3.7 to 4 point or to 4 percent nationally. Right, we're right at that number right now. So in the meltdown, the mortgage meltdown in 08, right, um, and the trough of that correction is 2009 when we had a 55 percent right um, haircut decrease in the average sales price uh, we had never seen that before and there were all kinds of things that led up to it that's a whole radio show in it of itself right mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the fact is we overcorrected and since that time we're just right about that point of average four percent appreciation right since the trough of that market even though we've had I'd say is substantially more than that, right, the last um, several years. So I think a few minutes ago, Dan, you mentioned long-term. Real estate is a great long-term investment. If, it, if you do it short-term, and I had some clients recently that wanted to buy and sell all in two years for profit, and I say, eh, that two years isn't that long. You, you can't count on that. What if you had bought in 2005 and had to t sell in 2007? Not a good investment, but if you were able to keep it long-term, 2005 to 2015, you did well. Yeah, so. I've always said the biggest mistakes I've always made are is the real estate that I sold yeah. and did <laughs> not keep. And I'd go back <laughs> later and, and, and just recently had that experience and looked at a property that I had sold a few years ago, um, apartment house that um, now is substantially grown in value. Mm -hmm. So I wished we would, hindsight, wish we had just kept it. Yeah, I've heard that so many times from people. I, I know a guy, he's a builder. He said he wishes he would have just kept 1% 
of the homes that he built. Um, he said he, he'd be well off now. But, you know, he sold, sold them all, took that profit, and somehow or another spent it. I have, sold, I have built subdivisions, uh, multiple homes, that had I just kept one of those homes, I would have made today more money than I made selling the entire subdivision. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, we just have a minute or two left on the show, but I want to ask you, and I'll start with you, Patrick, what's your best real estate advice? Wow, best advice. I think uh, hands down is working with uh, a well-informed, experienced uh, sales associate to navigate those waters um, because whether it's an investment property, right, or you're looking to right, own and uh, your you know, first home, right, your move-up home, your luxury home, uh, it is right, a high-dollar investment uh, for all of us, and I think it's having the right professional. All right, good answer. Now I'm going to turn to you. that one would be location, location, mm-hmm. location. Okay. I think. That cliche is as, good, as valid today as it ever was. Yeah, yeah, because you're buying something. Real estate is intangible and tangible. And, and not it, movable. Yeah, and, and so if, if you buy it in a good location, you've done well. You'll benefit. Yeah. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming in today, especially want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And I hope you've heard all the good advice that that you've heard today and get out there and make some good real estate moves. Thank you very much. And we'll be back again next week. Thanks.